Next is gonna be IV therapy clinics. And this should be a short one, but here's the deal. There is absolutely no justification for doing this from a health standpoint. Now, if you feel better when you do it, great, but it doesn't mean it's benefiting your health. Now, if you are dehydrated and you need an electrolyte solution or something like that, that may be helpful. And it might make you feel better in the short term, but again, that doesn't mean it's benefiting your health. And there was a story that came out a couple of weeks ago where a woman died at an IV therapy clinic. They don't know exactly what happened. They think it's probably related to the IV therapy, but this is not something that we need to be doing. This is not something that's benefiting your health. Taking a massive load of vitamins that you're going to urinate out a couple of hours later is not worth it. Welcome to the Nutrition Science Podcast, where we help you cut through the noise and make informed science-based decisions about nutrition and your health. How's it going, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Nutrition Science Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Adrian Chavez, and in this episode, we are going to be doing another Q&A episode. In this one, we are going to cover five topics. The first one is, is berberine nature's Ozempic? And Ozempic is the weight loss medication. If you haven't heard of that, berberine is a supplement. It's become very popular recently, so we'll discuss whether or not this is the weight loss supplement that can rival Ozempic. Uh, the second thing we're going to discuss is the Galveston diet. I've been getting asked a lot of questions about this, and I want to address it. The third thing that we're going to cover is how to heal your gut after antibiotics. The fourth thing we're going to cover is IV therapy clinics. And the fifth thing we're going to cover is microwaves and nutrient loss in food, or are microwaves safe? So let's go ahead and get into it. We're going to start off with the first topic is berberine nature's Ozempic. And the short answer to this question is no. There was a study that was published in 2020. It was a meta-analysis of randomized controlled trials that looked at the impact of berberine on body weight. And it showed that there was about a two kilogram reduction on average among the individuals who supplemented with berberine. Um, so it did produce what would be considered what was statistically significant weight loss. So two kilograms, about five pounds. That was the average weight loss in the trials that were done on berberine. That was a marginal weight loss. That's probably better than almost any supplement has shown in terms of weight loss. However, trying to compare that to Ozempic is a bit of a stretch. The step five trial, one of the trials that they tested Ozempic in, in that particular trial, the women in the Ozempic group lost about 16 kilograms. This is significantly more than what the individuals in the berberine groups lost. And this isn't even comparable. When it comes to weight loss, five pounds, probably not going to make a difference. 16 kilograms, which is about 38-ish pounds, probably going to make a difference. And probably a little less than 38, actually, like 35, 36. Um, that's going to make a difference in terms of health. And when we're trying to achieve body fat loss, there aren't any supplements that are going to do it. There's a lot of people who are willing to tell you that there are, but there aren't. Um, berberine can contribute to a small amount of weight loss. And this is probably largely due to the fact that one of the major side effects of taking berberine is nausea. And if you're nauseous, you're probably going to eat less. Um, but I don't want to completely dismiss berberine because I do want to point out that this berberine is one of the most well-studied supplements for a variety of health conditions that would be classified under what is called metabolic syndrome. So there was a study that was published, uh, meta-analyses, which is a compilation of studies. If you haven't heard me talk about that before, when I say the word 
meta-analyses. That means that it combined a bunch of studies together. And there was a study that was published in 2022. It was a meta-analysis that looked at the use of berberine in individuals with metabolic health problems. So high blood sugar, high triglycerides, high LDL cholesterol, blood pressure, high blood pressure. And they looked at the impact of berberine supplementation on that group of individuals. And they showed that berberine can reduce triglyceride levels, can reduce LDL cholesterol, can increase HDL cholesterol, can reduce fasting plasma glucose, and can also improve insulin sensitivity. So this isn't a worthless supplement. There could be some benefits of using berberine in certain cases if you're a little bit overweight, you're trying to lose weight, you have some metabolic health problems, high triglycerides, high LDL, and you've spoken to your doctor about this because berberine, as I've discussed with supplements before, uh, when you're taking a supplement, you want, like the first thing we want to take or consider taking are things that are replenishing the nutrients that we may not be getting through food. Like that's the most important thing when it comes to supplements, making sure that we're having our nutrient needs met. Then after that, we want to look at, are there potential supplements that have shown to have benefits in multiple randomized trials on things that I want to see a benefit from. So for example, if you have high triglycerides um, and this has been shown to be safe in me um, with my unique characteristics, because with berberine, there are the side effects, as I mentioned, of nausea, sometimes constipation, sometimes diarrhea for some individuals. Um, There's also uh, some people will have low blood sugar or low blood pressure when they take it. Uh, It is definitely not recommended for pregnant women, and it's also, it interacts with medication. So you want to be very careful when you're choosing supplements. A lot of people think, oh, supplement, it's safe. If you're taking something that's not replenishing a nutrient in a normal dose, so for example, uh, vitamin B12, like pretty safe if you're just taking a B12 in a normal dose, there's almost no risk involved with that. But when it comes to herbs, when it comes to things like berberine and ashwagandha and uh, other herbal concoctions, there are interactions with medications. There are uh, certain interactions that specific people can have to these supplements. And you really want to be super careful about making the choice to take a supplement. I've talked about this quite a bit. Um, Just because there's some evidence to support the use of berberine doesn't mean that you have to go out and take it because you have high triglycerides or high LDL or whatever the case may be. Speak to your doctor about this as a potential option. It can reduce triglycerides, LDL, fasting plasma glucose, but it's not a massive difference. Um, it's a it's a marginal difference. It's not going to compare to a cholesterol medication, and it's not going to compare to a a medication that's meant to, uh, you know, kind of improve weight loss. Now, it is somewhat comparable when it comes to blood sugar. You may have heard of metformin. It's been tested against metformin and shows similar improvements in plasma glucose levels and fasting glucose levels as metformin. Uh, but this isn't something that again you just need to go out and take because there are quote-unquote benefits. Um, There are hundreds of supplements that have clinical trials demonstrating benefits, but that doesn't mean that you need to be taking it. Um, So when it comes to berberine, if you have metabolic syndrome, uh, if you have high triglycerides, high LDL cholesterol, prediabetes or type 2 diabetes, uh, it may be worth considering, and I highly recommend talking to your doctor about it if you are considering it. Now, if your goal is to lose weight, it's not going to help there. It's going to have a marginal effect, if any, and that marginal effect is probably going to be due to the nausea that you might experience from taking it. 
And so I don't necessarily recommend it for that purpose. Now, again, it can be useful for other purposes, um, but if your goal is to lose weight, focus on increasing your energy expenditure through non-exercise activity, like increasing your movement throughout the day, uh, managing your calorie intake, and focusing on your habits and behaviors. And if you really need to and you're struggling and you're, you're really having a hard time losing weight, weight loss medications can be a very effective tool to help you in your lifestyle change, um, but metformin's not going to do that. So that's number one. Metformin is not a replacement for Ozempic. And all of these studies, I'll post the links in the show notes if you want to check them out. So uh, anytime I talk about a study on the podcast, you can find that link in the show notes. Um, so next, Galveston Diet Review. So the Galveston Diet is a diet that has become popular recently. I get asked about it quite a bit. It was developed by an OBGYN, which is a gynecologist. It's a medical professional that is uh, specifically trained to deal with women who are going through menopause, and that's what this diet is about. So the Galveston diet is targeted towards women who are going through menopause. It's supposed to be a special diet to help women reduce some of the menopause-related symptoms. From what I understand, the education in that book is excellent when it comes to hormones, when it comes to menopause, when it comes to that transition and what you expect and what might happen. However, when it comes to nutrition, the diet that is promoted, the quote-unquote Galveston diet, is a diet that is a low-carb diet, and it includes fasting and also restricts and tells you you can't eat a bunch of quote-unquote inflammatory foods. Now, if you've been listening to this podcast, you follow me, you know that the term inflammatory foods is not a term that actually means anything. And when people label foods inflammatory, they probably don't understand nutrition very well because whether or not a food is inflammatory is dependent on a lot of factors. Whether or not you experience inflammation when you eat a food is dependent on a lot of factors. We can't just broadly label foods inflammatory because it depends on how much you're eating, what else you're eating, your individual response to that food, and many other things. So when you put someone on a, on a nutrition plan that is low carb, that includes fasting, that makes you take out a lot of foods because they're quote unquote inflammatory, what's going to happen is you're going to eat less. And when people eat less, they tend to not gain weight or they tend to lose weight. And that is where a lot of the testimonials come from around this diet. So what most diets are, is pretty much every diet, you'll, you'll see this. They put together the story, they put together a set of rules and restrictions. So in this case, the rules and restrictions are the rule is you fast. The rule is you don't eat more than 10% of your diet from carbohydrates. And the rule is that you don't eat, quote unquote, inflammatory foods. When you place these rules and restrictions on people, they tend to eat less, they tend to lose weight, and then they think the diet is some magical thing. Uh, that is how pretty much every diet works. That's how this diet works. You put some random restrictions. There's not evidence to say that you need to fast or you need to go low carb or you need to um, do any of these things that she's recommending. And another aspect of it, and I highly recommend, I'm going to post this link in the show notes as well. My friend Abby Langer did a thorough review on this diet. And another thing that she pointed out that I think is really important is your body's supposed to change. If you're going through menopause, if you're a woman, you're in your 40s, um, 40s or 50s, and you're starting to go through that menopause transition, your body's going to change. And there's a entire market blowing up right now of people basically selling you on the idea that they can help prevent some of that change or completely like eliminate the menopause transition or the symptoms associated with it. Now, a healthy lifestyle, you know, eating well, sleeping well, taking care of yourself, not not pushing yourself too hard is definitely going to help. And if you're 
intentional about taking care of yourself, you're probably going to be able to go through that transition with less symptoms. However, there's there's nothing special about going low carb and fasting. Um, the issue that most people run into during menopause, the question that I get asked about the most is how do I lose belly fat during menopause or how do I gain the, or how do I prevent this weight gain that I didn't expect during menopause. It just came about that wasn't necessarily related to my behaviors. It was just the changes that were going on in my body. And the what Abby pointed out and what I am also in, endorse is you don't necessarily have to try to prevent all of these changes and you shouldn't as you're going through your 40s and 50s as an you know aging adult you shouldn't expect to continue to have you know the body quote unquote that you had in your 20s and again there's a whole market just designed to tell women that that their bodies aren't supposed to change and i, I can't tell you how many times i've had people reach out to me and say oh i you know, I want to weigh what I did. I had my goal weight and I'm like, where did that come from? Well, that's what I weighed in high school or that's what I weighed in college. That's what I weighed when I was 21. That's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. Like your body is going to change as you age. You are not defined by your body fat percentage or the way your body looks or, you know, whether or not you're carrying a little bit of extra belly fat. That is not what makes you a human. That is not you know, the, the important aspects of your being. And unfortunately, from a societal perspective, you know, a lot of us have gotten caught into this idea that the way that we look and our physique is so incredibly important. And we have to do anything we can as we age to try to avoid, you know, any changes that may occur to that as a result of the normal aging process. Um, the reality is that you're probably going to gain weight in your 40s, 50s, 60s. And the reality is that's probably going to protect you when it comes to health. Now, if you're already overweight or obese and you're carrying excess body fat, extra weight gain is probably not going to help. But if you're someone who's been very lean, who isn't overweight or obese or carrying a very high amount of body fat, I don't even like that overweight category because overweight is generally a healthy category. If your BMI is 26, that doesn't mean you're unhealthy. Uh, But if you're carrying a lot of excess body fat, uh, you will probably benefit from you know, not gaining fat and probably losing fat. But if you're someone who is consistently exercised, consistently stayed on top of your uh, nutrition and health, and your body starts to change in your 40s and 50s, um, getting more extreme with your habits to try to prevent that change is not going to help you. And is probably going to mentally mess with you because your body's changing. You can't prevent that. And trying to prevent that and trying to avoid that and every, you know, doing everything you can to uh, to avoid that change, it's probably going to mess with you mentally. And so it's really important. Um, and I know not everyone is thinking this way, but it's really important that if you're going through your, you're going through this transition and you are trying to force your body not to change, that's probably not realistic. And it's really important to understand that your body is going to change as you age and not to buy into all of the marketing around, you know, the anti-aging or reversing aging and all of this. We are going to age, period. Your body's going to change. You're going to get older. You're probably going to get softer in places that you didn't want to. But do not let that define you as a human. Who you are is so much more important than the way you look. And I really, it it hurts me to see people struggling and putting so much energy and effort into trying to look a certain way or force their body not to change during this 
important period of transition. So I know that was a little rant that didn't have to do specifically with the Galveston diet, but the Galveston diet, you know, you don't need to go low carb. You don't need to fast. You don't need to do these things. I will link my friend Abby Langer's blog uh, in there where she reviews it in more depth and gives specific information and education around nutrition and menopause and gives you some practical tips as well. She's a great person to follow and I highly recommend uh, checking out her blog and then following her on social media. So I'll post some of that in the show notes. Um, Next is how to heal your gut after antibiotics. I get this question frequently and here's the thing. You don't need to heal your gut after antibiotics. Just because you take an antibiotic doesn't mean your gut is destroyed. And there is no special protocol to quote unquote fix your gut after antibiotics. So an important thing to consider is antibiotics are a range of different medications. They, there's different types of antibiotics that target different microbes that have different strengths. So saying, hey, you need to do this after antibiotics is, is really broad and doesn't give us much information. Some antibiotics may be more powerful and have a greater negative effect, negative effect on digestion. The other side of it is the way that antibiotics is going to impact each individual is dramatically different. So most people are going to be fine. You take an antibiotic and within three to eight weeks, your digestive system, your microbiome is recovered back to normal. Now there is some evidence that taking a probiotic may actually delay that restoration of your microbiome. So the reason that I got get asked this question a lot is because probiotics are often recommended to people who take antibiotics. I can't tell you how many times I've seen people do this where they take antibiotics and they take a whole bunch of probiotics to try to negate the effects of the antibiotics. The problem is that you're taking probiotics, you're taking microbes that didn't exist in your gut before. So you killed off some of the native microbes that existed in your gut, and then you put a whole bunch of something else in there. And there is some evidence to show that that putting that whole bunch of something else in there uh, delays the restoration of the gut microbiome back to its original state and may actually have negative effects. So a lot of people are trying to mitigate the the you know, quote unquote, negative effects of antibiotics by taking probiotics. And in some cases, it may actually be hindering that recovery. So I don't recommend taking probiotics. Now, there is one circumstance where a probiotic may be useful when you're taking antibiotics. And that is there's a probiotic called Saccharomyces boulardii. And this has been shown to prevent antibiotic associated diarrhea because Saccharomyces boulardii competes with yeast in the gut. So it prevents the overgrowth of candida species in the gut, which can lead to digestive symptoms. So when you take Saccharomyces boulardii, it's a yeast species, so it's not a bacteria. So antibiotics are targeting bacteria, not yeast. And so it kills off some of the bacteria, but the yeast get to thrive. And when you take this Saccharomyces boulardii, it's been shown to prevent antibiotic-associated diarrhea due to the fact that it prevents the proliferation of these other yeast species when you're taking antibiotics. So that's the only circumstance where there's pretty good evidence that an antibiotic may be useful in the context of taking or a probiotic may be useful in the context of taking antibiotics. Any other circumstance, there's not evidence for it. And anyone who tells you there is and you need to take antibiotics after or probiotics after you take an antibiotic is just trying to sell you something. Uh, Or they may not know any better as well, but there is no evidence for it. I used to believe the same thing. I'm like, okay, we take an antibiotic, it's killing off some microbes, put some microbes back in to help. But when you actually read the research, it doesn't support that. So it is not recommended to do that. So how to heal your gut after taking antibiotics just continue living a healthy lifestyle. That's it. Uh, If you're already practicing healthy lifestyle habits, you're sleeping well, you're moving your body, you're eating a healthy diet, you don't have to do anything. Now, if you're not doing those things, then you need to do those things. And whether or not you take antibiotics, that's irrelevant. Uh, It's going to be helpful for you to incorporate those things into your lifestyle 
regardless. So the short answer to that question, how do you heal your gut after antibiotics? You don't do anything. It will recover on its own. And if it doesn't, because there are circumstances where you take a whole bunch of antibiotics and your gut didn't respond well to them and you develop persistent digestive issues, then at that in that case, it would be worthwhile to see a physician, a GI physician and specialist and potentially a, a nutritionist as well to help you work on those GI issues. Because there are some cases, because uh, I work with people with GI issues, there are some cases where people take antibiotics and they take a lot of antibiotics multiple rounds typically, multiple different types, and that leads to persistent digestive issues or it contributes to persistent digestive issues. That does happen. That's rare. Most of the time you take an antibiotic, you're going to be fine. It's not something to be overly concerned about. Next is going to be IV therapy clinics. And this should be a short one, but here's the deal. There is absolutely no justification for doing this from a health standpoint. Now, if you feel better when you do it, great, but it doesn't mean it's benefiting your health. Now, if you are dehydrated and you need an electrolyte solution or something like that, that may be helpful and it might make you feel better in the short term. But again, that doesn't mean it's benefiting your health. And there was a story that came out a couple of weeks ago where a woman died while getting at an IV therapy clinic and she she died. They don't know exactly what happened. They, they think it's probably related to the IV therapy, but this is not something that we need to be doing. This is not something that's benefiting your health. Taking a massive load of vitamins that you're going to urinate out a couple of hours later is not worth it. And going and driving to somewhere, getting an IV placed into your vein and sitting there and paying a hundred and something dollars for something that might make you feel good for a couple of hours is a really, really poor investment into money, time, and energy when it comes to your health. If you want to do something for your health, Focus on sleeping a little bit more. Focus on being more active. Focus on improving your nutrition. Doing an IV bag is not going to do anything for your health. Again, it may, may make you feel better if you're really dehydrated and it hydrates you very quickly, uh, but you can drink water. You can use an electrolyte solution in your water if completely necessary. If you lost a lot of electrolytes due to excess exercise or, or some other reason, but these clinics are basically a scam. Like they're claiming that they're going to help detox your body and improve energy levels and, you know, boost your immune system and whatever else they can say to get people to come in and do these IV therapies. And it's just a way to take your money. It's not benefiting your health. Please don't do these things. Now, again, if you want to do it fine, but if you're truly trying to do things that are benefiting your health and you're focused on improving your health, this isn't it getting an IV of a bunch of vitamins that you're going to pee out a little bit later and spending hundreds of dollars on it and driving to a clinic and sitting there to get it administered to you is a massive waste of time. All right. Last topic that I want to cover is microwaves and nutrient loss. And this came from a post that was sent to me about a woman who said that Cats were fed microwave food and they died of starvation, which was completely made up. So this was a post uh, I found on social media that was sent to me. Um, and I've had this question a lot. And I personally used to believe this particular myth as well. But microwaves do not negatively impact your food in any way. So microwaves heat up your food by causing, they use non-ionizing radiation, number one. So they're using non-ionizing radiation, which means that there's no radiation left in the food. Uh, so that's the first thing, because a lot of people think, oh, there's radiation in the food that's that's damaging. Radiation is not good. Uh, 
No. Number two, uh, they are the way that microwaves heat up food is they cause the particles in the food, the water particles in the food to move around really quickly, and that causes heat to escape and that heats up the food. It is not changing the structure of the food at all. This has been well documented. There's been studies that date back to the 70s that have shown over and over again that when you cook food in other methods versus microwave, there really is no major difference. And in fact, there may actually be some slight advantage to microwaving food due to the shorter cooking times. There seems to be a slightly greater retention of certain nutrients that are denatured by heat like vitamin C when you microwave food versus other cooking methods due to the short cooking times. So if you're someone who's heard that microwaves are dangerous and you shouldn't use them and maybe you're not using a microwave, this is your sign to stop worrying about it. Like I went through this phase in my early 20s. It was probably a three or four year period where I didn't use microwaves. And then I read the research. So I got exposed to this type of information. Someone said that microwaves were dangerous and they denatured food and they caused nutrient loss and all these other claims. So I got rid of my microwave and didn't use one for years. And then I read the research and it was very clear to me that I believe something that is completely misleading. And these experiences for me are part of the reason that I like to address some of these misleading claims because they can cause a whole lot of inconvenience. They can cause wasted money, wasted time, wasted energy. And at the end of the day, you only have so much bandwidth to put into your health and wellness. And if you're focusing your energy on IV therapies and avoiding microwaves and other random stupid stuff like this, you are going to be putting a lot of energy into your health and you're not going to see good results from it. And again, I know this from experience. In my 20s, I did a lot of stuff that took a lot of energy, time, was expensive, and was completely pointless. And I am much better off now in my 30s where I live a much more flexible lifestyle. I don't listen to any of these wellness gurus. I just focus on what the science says and apply that into my life, and I am much better off. So do not worry about microwaves. So quick recap of the five questions that we covered today. Number one, is berberine nature's ozempic? Short answer, no, it's definitely not nature's ozempic. It can be useful for certain individuals with metabolic syndrome, uh, but it is not going to lead to anywhere near the weight loss that Ozempic does. Number two, Galveston Diet Review. Galveston Diet recommends a low-carb and fasting approach and a removal of quote-unquote inflammatory foods. There's nothing special about this. This is just another set of rules that leads people to eat a little bit less and then they lose weight and think that there's something magical about it. Uh, so definitely don't recommend it. And I recommend checking out my friend Abby Langer's blog post on the topic if you're more interested in menopause nutrition. Number three, how to heal your gut after antibiotics. Do nothing. It doesn't need to heal. It's not broken. It's fine. It's going to recover in most cases. And if it doesn't see a specialist, because in some very unique circumstances, there could be long-term negative effects from taking antibiotics. But that rarely happens. That is the rare exception. In most cases, you're going to take the antibiotics and you're going to be just fine a couple weeks later. Number four, IV therapy clinics. These things are a scam. Stay away from them. I mean, if you want to do it because it feels good and you don't mind wasting money and time, that's fine. But outside of that, these are pretty much a scam. Now, there are other circumstances. Unfortunately, because we live in the U.S. and healthcare is ridiculously marked up, um, there are other circumstances where someone might need hydration through an IV or something like that. And it's way too expensive to go to an actual medical care facility because they mark everything up. So going to one of these IV drip clinics may be worthwhile. That is a very rare exception. The vast majority of people going to these clinics are wasting money and wasting time. Number five, 
Microwaves do not negatively impact nutrient composition compared to other cooking methods. Microwaves don't cause radiation in your food. Microwaves are perfectly safe. So that's all I have for this episode. I hope this information was helpful and useful. If you're enjoying the show and you haven't left a review already, I would really appreciate it if you would go over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to the podcast and leave a review. That really helps get this podcast out to more people, helps go up in the rankings and more people see the podcast when it ranks higher. So I would really appreciate that. The other thing you can do that is probably even more beneficial than leaving a review is to share the show. So share it on your social media, share it with a friend. That is the other way that we get this podcast out to more people is through your shares. And I really appreciate it when you all do that. So I hope you all have a great week and we will talk soon.